Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. When you talk about extreme music, the bands that seem to come to mind are Napalm, Death, Sun, Morbid Angel, you know, bands like that, Blast Beats, really fast BPM, that kind of stuff. Let's not forget a lot moment and his contribution to extreme music. If you're not familiar with the lop, check out Dialect. That's a good place for you to start with his catalog of music. Dialect formed in the late 90s, Newark, New Jersey. People call it experimental hip-hop. I like to just call it hip-hop. Alop left the band in uh, 2010 and has been busy in his Harlem-based studio producing a variety of different acts based in and around New York City. He is also about to launch his brand new record label, and we'll talk all about this, so enjoy the episode. Up here in Harlem, New York City, I want to present something to you that kind of might fuck with your idea what extreme music actually is, because it's like I'm sitting here with a lop, one of the most extreme producers I've ever fucking met, man, because honestly, dialect... Back in the day, you were one of the co-founders of that band. Correct. Um, I, I was introduced to Dialect in a, at a basement show in Pennsylvania. Wow. And it was one of the most extreme sort of, and I use that term in a, in a very general sense, experiences because there's a lot of hardcore punk, you know, metallic punk, whatever you want to call it, happening. And you guys didn't have guitars and you were doing what I'm going to call hip hop. Yeah, we call exactly it hip hop. So, yeah, I mean that's to us it was hip hop. And uh, in, though, well, I grew up in you know the New York area, tri-state area, just like a lot. You know, we're you're from Jersey, Jersey I'm from yeah. just outside the city, yeah, Westchester. Nice. And we uh, grew up, m- me probably more so, just aware of it. Like I was never a huge hip hop head when I was a kid, but as I grew older, I got into like you know Run DMC and sure. you know, then the Wu Tang Clan and sure, then, you yeah, know whatever. Of course, yeah. And um, and that also. Especially when I started getting into like Public Enemy, that was like extreme fucking. Yeah, music. Public Enemy was the one for me. Yeah, I could say um, from my background. So, I think like 1980, I was like six years old, and I was that's when I first started getting really like into music that like, was outside of like my parents' influence, you right. know. And I think it was literally like whatever early MTV had them, like Flock of Seagulls, Mexican Radio, of All of Voodoo, and all that. And I really liked um, Michael Jackson Thriller, still my favorite album of all time. And then I got into the new wave thing, like the Duran Durans and all that. And then and then it kind of led me into Def Leppard, Van Halen, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, that 84 era. Yeah. Iron Maiden kind of came right out of the 84, 85. I got really into Live After Death and then the whole Iron Maiden thing. And it was just this progression of constantly looking for something heavier and heavier to represent how bored and angry and pissed I was in the suburbs or whatever in Jersey. And by like 86 is like... I remember finally really like hip hop, like Run DMC starting to blow. 
Uh, and it was just before Public Enemy, but I remember like being like the Italian kids were all breakdancing, rocking like parachute pants and stuff on the playground, and they'd have like Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five, yeah. but they'd also play Iron Maiden. We are the Italians that would like rock Creepin' Death, but they would have Eric B and Rakim in the I Rock, you know what I mean? They listened to like CNC Music Factory and Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam. You know, th- I feel like that's like a tri-state area. Oh, thing, definitely, man. Like, man, definitely. That, that cultural thing. I'm still that way. Yeah. Like, it never left <laughs> totally. me. In fact, it got worse as my, I'm 45 now. I'm more of a Guido now than I was as a kid. <laughs> Fucking Indian Guidos. But, um, you know, so like, I think it was like, it, it, for me, it went from like commercial radio, MTV, into the metal thing. And then from the metal thing, it was like I finally got into, I think my first tapes were, um, one side was Victim and Pain, the other side was Minor Threat's first record, and then the other tape was something like Age of Quarrel and Crumb Suckers. And I remember, I think I was like 13 or 12 at the time. No, even younger, because I got the Dead Kennedys when I was like 10. So I was already getting into the punk thing. Sure. But when it got into hardcore, it was like the Bad Brains. I remember at that point being like, wow, this is like way cooler than metal like for me it was like it it felt like they were talking about shit it was real new york vibes you know what i mean like they kind of had almost like rap vibes like eddie leeway was talking about drug dealing and fucking snitches get stitches and shit you know like it kind of had a hip-hop vibe whereas the metal guys were talking about like space and mars and and satan or whatever (laughs) and i liked all that too i'm a huge metal guy but i mean Hardcore was the first moment where I was like, I could really relate to this, you know? And I remember, you know, Slayer, Rain, and Blood just being the epitome for me in 86. Like, that was it. Metallica, Megadeth, Overkill, Anthrax, and Slayer all came out in 86, right? And I, I was obsessed with that. was, like, the heaviest thing on earth. And then 87, 88 come around, and Public Enemy came out. She watched Channel Zero. And then that whole, you know, ee- yeah. And I remember just thinking, like, damn, this makes Slayer sound small, and they don't even have guitars. I know Channel Zero has a Slayer sample, but outside of that song, there were heavier songs on that record that didn't even have a guitar. It was like the fucking tea kettle whistling, just that sound. And I remember realizing very early, like, man, two guitars, drums, and bass isn't really the move, you know? There's another way to get deeper, and I think you had mentioned before we started, like, emotionally heavy. Yeah. It's more emotional, these uh, strange sounds and kind of disjointed because you're sampling something from here and here and here, and you're taking energies from different eras and different rooms. There were musicians and people involved in all that. All those energies come together to make a new energy, and you're not going to get that just by plugging into a Mesa Boogie and putting a mic on it, you know? Yeah, it's, like, very, it's very restrictive. It's very restrictive. It's restricted, yeah. you know? Like, So I think Public Enemy, I didn't mean to go on such a long tangent, but the Public Enemy, just like you said, was the beginning of me realizing, wow, there's a way you can be way more extreme than just two guys playing guitar and drums and bass or a bunch of guys playing in a band. And that was the beginning for me of like getting into sampling and electronics and all that, you know? Well, I guess that's one of the things I've always admired about hip-hop and, um, and just the use of electronics is that what you touched on was that you're bringing in different energies, yeah. not just like this, you know, the drums, bass, guitar. Right. Rock guys look at it yeah. totally backwards. They're like, oh, you're cheating or you're using someone else's. Nah, it's not about like, you're not trying to just take someone else's riff. You want the the energy of that recording. You want the that, that feel. There's a swing in it. There's a f- vibe in it that like just plugging into an amp isn't going to get you at all, like, well, you know? <laughs> real, real quick about borrowing and, and all that. Sure. I mean, hell, man, there's only 12 notes. Well, exactly. And, and like, there's so many if, chords. Right. Even if you're in the sickest metal band, <laughs> right. you're borrowing, bro. Right. You're borrowing from, you know, from Slayer, you're borrowing from Black Sabbath, right. you're borrowing or from Venom, Motorhead, or, or Motorhead. Yeah, totally. So that's so much for that, you know Sure, I mean? <laughs> sure. I mean, 
mean, I I would always say that too about like I, I loved Led Zeppelin. I went through a big Zeppelin phase, yeah. and I'm like, this is all just like 20s and 30s black church music, man. Like it's not like they wrote they didn't make Heartbreaker, they didn't make a whole lot of love. Like this is all black church shit from the 30s, you know. So I mean, what's the difference between a white guy t- playing a guitar and stealing a bunch of chords and a black guy having a sampler and stealing a bunch of chords? Yeah. <laughs> you know? another, another way I look at it too is like like I love like genre fiction. Me you know? too. I like watching crime films. Sure. Like reading about reading crime, you know. Yeah. Horror, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like if you work within a certain format, you're you're definitely using concepts that have come before you. Of course. But you're you're using that as a lens to focus your own ideas. Sure. Your own sort of sure. like emotional uh, outlets. Yeah. So that's kind of like music in general. You know, everyone, no one's really original. You of course, know what I mean? never. So, so that that conversation can be put to rest. Totally, totally. So it's like Thanks, really, yeah, it's awesome. about how you use these tools, be it a guitar or a sampler or a exactly. drum machine or a synth or whatever. Yeah. And make your point known to people and communicate ideas and emotions. Sure, it's all expression. It's yeah. what you have to say. I don't really care how to get there. I could make an amazing record on a four track right now. I don't need anything anymore. Yeah. It's all because I got the ideas in my DNA. It's all inside of me now. I can get on any kind of instrument. I don't even play instruments. I can get on any kind of instrument and play anything. You ever see RZA in that clip with the black keys? Where he no, picks up the guitar and he starts playing like this like old, like it sounds like Bruce Lee game of death. Okay. And you can tell RZA has no idea how to play guitar. And it's like <laughs> the best guitar part you've ever heard. Because that's what it's about. It's about being able to express what you're trying to say and having something to say. It doesn't matter about if you're the greatest musician or not. It's about what you're trying to say and what you're trying to put across, I think, you know? And people don't realize that, like, yeah, Metallica were great musicians, but they also had a lot to say. Totally. And that technicality was just a vehicle for them to say what they were trying to express. They weren't just being technical because they that's what you're supposed to do when you're in a band. And play, you know, it, it's just that's what how they wanted to express themselves. So yeah. they got really fucking good, you totally. know. And you know, Black Flag and and you know some of the punk bands and stuff, they were a little looser and sloppier, but that's how they wanted to express themselves. When you hear Greg Ginn's guitar solos, I remember when I was a kid thinking like they, they was just made up, but then you'd hear the live who's got the ten and a half, oh. and he's playing them note for note exact. Yeah, and then you go on and read, and you'd love this because I, I know that you're a Black Flag fan, and I know that you're really open into a lot of music. I found out years later that that Greg Ginn was actually a huge free jazz fan, and yes. he loved Pharoah Sanders and and Ornette Coleman, and especially John Coltrane. And apparently, he was just trying to make his guitar solos sound like Coltrane's solos on sax. And when you go back and listen to Black Flag, then it's really mind blowing. Then you're like, I hear it. I hear my favorite things all over this shit, you know? So Absolutely. It's, it's not about musicianship to me unless that's what you need to port, express yourself. I think it's more about the story you're trying to tell, you know? We covered expression, okay? Did you play, did you, what, what instrument did you first start on? All right, so I think when I was like five, there was like an organ in my bedroom and I would just fuck around on that, but I never got great. And then when I was like six, I did the flutophone like recorder thing that yeah, everybody had to do. Yeah, and then my first real instrument that I played for like four years when I was like nine or 10 was a uh, trumpet. And I played like in the school, elementary school band or whatever. But that was like the first thing that I was like serious. Like I liked playing trumpet. I learned how to read a little bit of music and I practiced and I was I was obviously drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And then um, immediately by like 13, I was in like six hardcore bands. I was playing drums in some bands. I was playing guitar in some bands. This is the era of like... 
you know, when like all that stuff was coming out. Like it was like right around the age of quarrel, and then you got the, the offshoots, the the leeways, the 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 breakdowns, the outbursts, like all that stuff started happening. So then you remember that era, everyone's incestual. Like yeah. this guy plays drums on this yeah, record, he plays your... guitar in this band, and he plays bass in that band. Yeah. So I kind of copied that, and I just played in a lot of different bands. So basically, it was trumpet and then guitar and then drums. Yeah, you know. When did you make the departure into doing hip hop? Ninety-five. I met Will Dialek, and um, we went to William Patterson, and we met there. And he found out I had a studio. Is everything cool with the levels? Okay. Yeah. And uh, he found out we had like a studio. Uh, I had a studio, and he was kind of like, "Yo, I got a bunch of songs. I'd love to come and record a demo with you." So he came and, and uh, started working with me. And in that year, I had this ASR ten sampler. But it was funny. I would use it with the indie rock and the punk bands I was working with. But we would just use it to like, you know, like sample a guy's guitar feedback and then be able to like fly it into the song whenever yeah, we, like right we were using it really dumb. You know, we were using it kind of like a like a technical tool to be able to like line things up or, you know, if you had a bad singer, like especially indie rock bands, the singers were terrible, you know, like so they couldn't nail like the chorus. So you'd sample the chorus and then manually fire it in every time the chorus happen so you'd have the consistent vocal take or whatever so we were using it as like an engineer tool i was using it as an engineer tool and then when i met will man he fucking came in on that uh, hard with the mpc 3000 man and it was like the way i feel about 808s today it was what the mpc was when i saw that man it was so easy to use it was so musical it made so much sense there was zero learning curve you just put sounds in hammered them on pads hit record there was your song ready to go and really like nothing you'd ever heard before and it was that thing that we talked about with public enemy where it was like this is really heavy man and it's really basic and it had that punk feeling too like yeah. it felt like man you could make a whole album in 20 minutes you know like which is what jazz and punk always was the appeal to me was that these records could be made really quickly in a day or two you know and um so yeah so that was it will will kind of introduce me to the mpc and then i got back to my asr and started making actual beats on it instead of just sampling feedback and flying it in you know <laughs> yeah. so back coming coming out of the um you know, you're, you're a hardcore kid you're in jersey uh putting a band like this together or putting a project like this together and you know the kind of freedom that you feel at first you know when you're first finding your sound finding what you're doing but then like at one at some point you must have gotten sort of ambitious about what you wanted to do yeah music. that's that's great that's a great I, no one's ever even really said that but that's exactly what happened i think um 95 to like through like the end of 96 into 97 me and will were just really novices and we were just learning like we didn't like even though will knew how to sample and he knew how to rap he knew how to make beats we didn't really know like songwriting yet because hardcore wasn't really about songwriting. Hardcore was just blasts of energy to make people dance. Yeah. It was almost like dance music. Like it's funny that the Guido thing and the hardcore thing out, up here in New York was kind of hand in hand oh, because yeah. you could go see like a DJ at a, at a dance club and they were basically doing the same thing that the hardcore bands were doing. You didn't care if the band was in tune. You didn't really watch them. It was You would judge the shows on how the crowd was. Like you would go, oh, I saw a breakdown. It kind of sucked. Everyone was just standing there. Or you'd go, oh, it was great last night. I, I chipped a tooth. People were, there was a guy hanging off the ceiling. Someone got hit with a hammer. Like you were like, this was the greatest show on earth. And when you go to DC DJs, it's like that. You're not really watching the DJ. You're there to let loose and you'll complain. You'll be like, oh, I saw the DJ last night. Crowd kind of sucked. No one was really dancing. You know, you'd be like, oh, it was great. 300 bitches just going ham. You know, you're like, this is the move, you know. So I, I think for me, 
songwriting was really new when me and Will started working together. And I was getting really into Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Neil Diamond, like real Jewish schools of songwriting. These are like coming out of the Yiddish, like Bowery, like old school New York stuff. All this like this, uh, you know, Jewish songwriters are probably my favorite in the world, you know. And I would say like outside of the Jewish songwriters, number one for me is John Lennon, you know. So we were going through a Beatles phase. We were going through a songwriter phase. And I and, I, and it's funny because... um. At that time, hip hop was still very, like you just had a loop and a guy would rap for five minutes, right. and like when the verses and choruses, except for Public Enemy and Daylight and Tribe, but most of the time there, there was no there was no tempo change or key change. There, you didn't even change the sample. A lot of times you just rapped from the verse to the chorus with the same sound. And with us, we really wanted to bring musicalities into it without sounding overly musical. Like we weren't trying to be the Roots. We weren't trying to sound like live hip hop. Yeah. But we wanted to bring musicality into sampling and, and sample bass music so we got really obsessed with songwriting so it took like two years and then there was a moment where we had like the first three songs that became Negro Necro Necos was our first record and I was recording bands like Lifetime and the Rye Coalition and uh, Ted Leo with Chisel and Transmaghetti and a lot of like kind of emo-y post-hardcore 90s 90s kind of, kind of yeah. bands and a lot of these bands were on labels like Gurn Blanston and Trouble Man that I did a lot of work for so while these bands were recording I was simultaneously doing the dialect thing so when they'd come in I would play like Chris Skelly from Dahlia C was a big supporter right away I played him like these three songs we did and he just looked at me and was like bro like nobody's doing this like if you don't shop this I'll personally take these around myself and hit up all these labels and I was like all right so I played it for Charles from Gurn Blanston yeah. and immediately he was into it and, and he put out the first album but that's where we got ambitious we were like at first we were like how do you do Smith and Wesson? How do you do Wu Tang? How do you do Nas? How do you do Black Moon? How do you do uh, Mob Deep? You know, we didn't know how to get that Mob Deep snare. Like that Mob Deep snare sounds like fucking Lord of the Rings, like an anvil. You know, it's so Lord of the Rings. Every snare hit on a Mob Deep record, you flinch, like your eyes eyes fucking <laughs> shut because it's so heavy. And I remember just thinking, like, how the fuck do you do that? Like, I, I mean, I've been making punk records for ten years. I don't have never heard a snare like this. You know. So real quick about yeah. the studio though, yeah. down in Jersey, because like you mentioned. All these bands. Right, I'm sorry, I'm jumping yeah. around a little. Um, so I was 19 when I started my first studio. I quit all my hardcore stuff around 18. Um, I kind of grew up in like the 87 to 92 era of hardcore, like New York hardcore, and um, and hip hop and da Jamaican dance hall and a lot of dance music and stuff. And by like 93, I just kind of was bored of it. And a lot of my friends that I grew up with were like hiding out. Some of them were dead. Some of them were in jail. And I was kind of like. Yo, I don't need to be doing this. Like, I live in Jersey. I got a great family. Like, I, I love music. Like, I just want to make records. Like, I'm not trying to go hide out in Nebraska right now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I just was like, fuck all that. And the, and the bands just started to get a little bit, like, watered down. Like, I caught them when it was relevant. I caught them when they were making demos. I caught them when they had one seven-inch. When they started making their second and third albums on Century Media or whatever, it was like, okay, I'm done with this, you know, Alpha Omega, whatever. Okay, all right, cool. You know, not to knock anybody. You know, I don't want to get beat up by anyone. But, like, you know, you know, it just was, for me, I was 18 years old, and it was like, I lived hardcore. I was hardcore. I was with the fucking roughest bands, roughest people, associates, or whatever. 13 to 18, I had it. Ran New York, you know? By 18, it was boring, and all of a sudden, I was discovering, like I said, Simon and Garfunkel, and I was discovering Phil Spector, and I was discovering Brian Wilson, and all these producers. And um, I started a studio just to kind of record myself, like me and my friends were doing kind of post-hardcore stuff. And... Um, 
it just kind of caught word caught, caught on like yo a lop's got an eight track studio and he's cheap <laughs> you know <laughs> and some band that you know some guys that i was in bands with when i was 14 or 15 had a band when i was like 19 i did a cd with them and then that was how Charles came in to do a Red Cross cover. And um, when he did the – or 45 Grave, not Red Cross. He did oh, a 45 cool. Grave cover. And uh, when he came in, me and him just fucking hit it off right away. And he liked the studio. He liked the vibe. He liked the sound. And he was like, I got this band Rye Coalition. I would love for you to do a – they're doing a split with this band Carp. Would you be interested in doing their, the 10-inch? The and I was like, fuck yeah, so sure. And then that was – it started. I was like a factory from 94 to 97. I think I was booked like – 10 to 20 hours a day every day i would take one week off in the summer one week off in the winter and all i did was record because i just wanted to learn I, I wanted to learn i did jazz records live the two track upright bass grand piano trombone and then i would do like a rye coalition and then lifetime would come in and then i did floor punch and endeavor you know pete from sick of it all came down with ensign because they were his roadies so it was like this mishmash of indie rock and metal and hardcore and jazz and then i met will in the midst of all that and i was recording a band called all natural lemon lime flavors who were on this kind of my bloody valentine stereo lab and i was getting into velvet underground and faust and all this kraut rock stuff so suddenly it was like me and will were taking the hip-hop we had grown up on the the metal and hardcore that we had grown up on and then bringing in the fausts and the my bloodies and the velvets and and the sort of noise end of things you know so that's when we got ambitious i would say yeah because because uh songwriting and sound was where we got really ambitious you know well, if i were to describe dialect live yeah i would sound yeah that definitely um we did like a hundred shows with the melvins yeah. right and um in 2002 and i remember that you know you get a lot of reviews where people didn't like us or whatever but they would be like the reviews would be like some weird hip-hop group opened but they were a hundred times louder than the melvins <laughs> and i'm like yeah i think the only two bands that were louder than dialect live literally was is motorhead and my bloody valentine and i i wouldn't even say they were louder than us by a lot like on a good night when we were really, especially in Europe, when we were on a good system, like a D&B in Germany or Holland or Belgium, we might have been louder than Motorhead. Like it was like that. And I know Motorhead is one of the loudest bands of all time. I remember in the past you telling me that Europe was definitely more your jam. Definitely. We went there first in January of 99 and immediately started playing on these huge sound systems. We were getting invited to raves. You know, we were playing like what you see in ED, as EDM today. We were playing on those types of systems in little tiny rooms but they could power like a 4,000 capacity venue in like a 300 that's why CBGB sounded so good do you know that no I didn't know so you know Tommy you know Victor the prong guys did all the sound or the crawl pappy guys and all that they did the sound at CB's right so they told me that um when I was a kid I found out that the reason CBGB's had one of the best sounds ever was it was the old Ritz sound system and the old Ritz is like 3,000 people but CBGB's is like 300 people if that. so you could never clip that system you could never blow that system you could never max it out that system could go as way louder than anything you heard in there and that's how Europe is to this day they have 300 capacity rooms with sound systems that are designed for 5,000 capacity rooms so when we go there we're not even in the yellow and it's like 120 DB I think Buzz said it we were in Paris and he invited a friend down and he, go, he goes to the friend he goes listen you got to come early tonight because we got this hip-hop group on tour with us called dialect because it sounds like a guy rapping over a jet engine <laughs> and that's basically Damn. you know <laughs> one, of, one of the things i always want i was always curious about was 
you pronounce the name of the band Dialect. Yeah, okay. right. But I look at it on paper, and I think Dalek, like from Doctor Who. Mm. What's the story with that? <laughs> so Will started rapping when he was like nine. No, I think he started DJing when he was nine. I think he started rapping when he was like 13. And um, like he was out of Newark in Jersey or whatever. So it was like everyone like rapped. He had a cypher. He had a little rap crew or whatever on the block. And when, when he would get on the mic or when he, it was his turn to rap or whatever, like all his neighborhood friends would just be like, oh, damn, man, this motherfucker could rap like any dialect, you know? Like he could rap in any dialect. Like he could just rap any way. And so that became his rap name, like dialect. But he thought like hip hop style to make it like funky you know like when you make a tag you know you, you change the letters like, you know, yeah. everything now has got numbers in it and shit sure. so like his whole thing was like d he thought a with the umlau l-e-k would make it like dialect but when we went to germany and it's like dalek and in sweden it's something else and then we found in england the doctor who thing you guys didn't even know about that even know. he's from newark bro that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, so that, that's a wild coincidence isn't that man. crazy and then there's the graffiti artist dalek yeah and then the craziest thing fucking Patton. he signed us on ipecac and then like three years later he signed dalek to do his art book and then it got even more confusing because it was like is it doctor who is it this graffiti guy is it these rap guys who the fuck is dialect you know like so yeah so it was just another way to spell dialect you know yeah i always wondered about yeah that. every that was our our first tour in europe we had like 10 shows in england and every night that was the question because they love dr oh, yeah know, in the like, uk and the uk when i first found out about you guys i was like oh yeah this and, and you know what they sick, used to man, say dialect, we got, we got written up in england and they would write like in the article sci-fi hip-hop because oh, it was all yeah. spacey and They're like, like lazy like so they just thought like daylight like it's sci-fi and <laughs> the sounds are all atmospheric and spacey and we were like okay whatever sells the record bro <laughs> you know like. and, and that just goes to like demonstrate how people music is so fucking subjective yeah really. that's yeah. just like another la layer yeah, to dude. it yeah and we Alex. loved that with dialect we yeah. would we would play shows and and what was nice about our crowds um especially like in the beginning like when we first finally started getting a following it took like five to seven years before people finally got their heads around it nobody really liked us in the beginning but when we started getting a following it was interesting because you'd get like the rap rap fans and they were like all about Will's lyrics you know and so they kind of likened him to like a KRS or a Chuck sure. D which I would too I think yeah. Will's an amazing lyricist if you read his lyrics just without the music it's as heavy as the sound it's pretty deep stuff so it was cool you'd get these guys, these guys and girls that were like really into the lyrical side of things then we had like a DJ this guy uh, DJ still rest in peace and he was this jamaican cat that like had a hendrix kind of vibe and he would scream into the turntable arms with a delay and a wah-wah pedal and he'd break records and he kind of had this hendrixy mersbow thing happening on the decks so then you'd have this whole population of people that were really into him yeah. for that whole aspect and then you had the the producer nerds that were like the beats the beats you know and so what was cool about it is that you'd get like people that didn't had a limited reference because our references were so wide and that's where you got that subjectivity. Some guys would hear us and be like, you guys sound like Neubauten. And I'd be like, I never heard Neubauten. And they'd be like, oh, you got to check out Neubauten. In Germany, you know, the industrial oh, yeah, fans. Yeah. So you sound like Neubauten. I'm like, Zev. I don't even know who that is, yeah, but okay, Zev, thanks. Neubauten. And then, you know, we'd go to the metal side and they'd be like, oh, wow, it sounds like this band and this band. I'm like, we're just trying to do My Bloody Valentine. And they would think it would sound like the Melvins or they sounded like, you know, uh, Sonno or Neurosis. And I'm like, I never God heard Neurosis. I don't know what that sounds like, but I like My Bloody Valentine, you know, like, and then we'd go to you know like um an, uh, an indie show and they might hear some of the more my bloody shoegazy aspects but not hear the punk side or not we had a lot of elements in everything you know so i liked that i liked that you could make it your own yeah one of the things i really appreciated about i mean i definitely was a fan of will's you know his his prowess on the mic for yeah, sure definitely and the um 
the combination of these kind of like like the beats you know being you know mechanical right, right. and very um, for lack of a better term the way I, I like to describe it is like this like sort of cold repetition to right it. totally but then it, it would combine with a very wide bandwidth like of of different textures and sounds sure, and colors yeah. and all this sure, other stuff sure. and i know color is not not a musical term but it's like oh it's a very musical it's like term. you would totally. you would feel different colors in the music totally too. i mean i i've worked with musicians that like especially jazz musicians i've worked with the older cats especially would always talk in colors they would always yeah. say like oh make it more orange or make it more blue make it more green and i always understood what that meant like i always see colors when i when i when i mix it's funny yeah, I would say that dialect is like a blue and red. <laughs> yeah, sort of and that's thing. the lighting we would have on stage. <laughs> I always said blues and reds only, and, and, and some reds. white, some white flashes every now and again. But yeah, that's funny that you that you heard that. <laughs> so the band continued on, and you left at some point. I left in 2010. I I was in it from '95 till 2010. I did seven albums. I did. 10 months of touring every year for almost 15 years, about, probably about 12 years. And then uh, we did collabs with people from Faust. We did collabs with people from This Heat. We did tours with everybody from Ministry and, and uh, you know, Tomahawk and Phantomas and Melvins to De La Soul, The Far Side. Um, we played festivals with Kanye West and Tool and Guns N' Roses and Morrissey and Pink Floyd doing Dog Side of the Moon. Oh, wow. So, you know, I got to meet... Literally, you know, Jello Biafra was a fan, you know, like everybody that I loved when I was like 14, nine to like 17 years old, ultimately became a fan of dialect. Like I remember Paul Barker from Ministry and I loved Ministry when I was like 13. And I remember him calling up our label because he was good friends with Greg that, that runs Ipecac with Mike. And um, and it was it was the biggest compliment ever. Like we must have been like 26 or something. And he Paul goes, you know, I've been doing this ministry thing for like 20 years. He's like, I'm kind of like just feeling like it's just not where I'm at anymore. I want to do something different. He's like, I kind of want to do what those dialect guys are doing. And I just remember being like, uh, next time I saw him, he had moved to Austin. So I saw him when we were in Austin. And I just said, Paul, man, uh, Greg told me what you said. I got to let you know, like, there would be no dialect if it wasn't for fucking Stigmata, bro. <laughs> you know, like that shit was like a big influence on me. So that's that. that was a huge thing for me was like, I did it. Like I, I did 15 years of touring. I made these records. I collaborated with my favorite musicians. I've kind of proven there's a way to be heavier than heavy. Like we were the heaviest guys on earth. We out heavied the Melvins. We, we were as loud as my bloody Valentine and the Motorhead. It felt like I hit a wall. It was like, okay, now what? And I was a little burnt on New York. Me and my wife decided to move to Berlin for a couple oh, years. I mean, oh yeah, you, you actually did tell me. So yeah. in 2009, we took off for Berlin. 2000, and by the time I got there, I was 35, and I started meeting all these like 19-year-old, 20-year-old guys. Dubstep was just about to blow then, and I remember meeting the producers that were doing house music and minimal techno. I met disco producers. I met dubstep cats, drum and bass cats. I met a lot of cats doing because Berlin is like kind of like what. what Nashville is to country, Berlin is to electronic music. It's yeah, like yeah, the techno capital of the world, you know, outside of Detroit as well. But um, so, you know, I, I just remember like being turned on to things that 
I literally didn't fuck with ever. You know, I was never a minimal guy. I was always a maximalist. I was always Velvet Underground, you know, Phil Spector, put it on a million tracks and make it really loud. You'd go to Germany, you'd hear like a, a bass line and a hi-hat for 40 minutes, but somehow you didn't get bored. You didn't re- need any more information. It just took you into a whole different place, and it was crazy to me. I'm like, these German cats are kind of doing inverse dialect. I'm like, this is as heavy as what I've been doing for 20 years or 30 years, really. I mean, I've been playing hardcore before dialect even, so this is as heavy as the stuff I'm doing, but like, it's the the opposite. It's like, like the back of the amp. You're hearing shadows. You're hearing ghosts. Oh, wow. And I said, I've yeah. been making records for, at that point, I'd been making records... 2010 so i've been making records at that point for t- almost 20 years i'm like everybody knows what the snare sounds like everybody knows what the front of the amp sounds like everybody knows what the front of all this information is i want to find a way where you could mute the front information and only work with the back information and these german guys it they taught me a lot i, I would go to like the rhythm and sound guys uh tiki man was a big influence on me i'd go to his studio and we would just smoke weed and drink tea and he would just mix and i would just watch him i had a couple minimal house dj friends i would just watch this guy had like five $5,000 speaker, you know, speakers and shit. So you just sit there and watch what they're doing and you'd hear them like taking out certain bandwidths and frequencies and all of a sudden it was like you were listening to ghosts and I had already started going there on the last couple dialect albums where I was getting tired of the heavy thing and I was trying to go more ambient, more yeah. melodic, more, more, uh, Brian Wilson, more Dark Side of the Moon or whatever, more Pet Sounds. And uh, and I remember like this was the first step where I was like, oh wow, man, like, I want. I'm. I'm looking for my ancestors. I'm looking for ghosts. I don't want to hear the living. The living is in the front. I want to hear the ghosts. And we used to do it on dialect records. After a, a record was done, I'd bring musicians in that played like acoustic guitar, fucking zither, harp, and we would just have them jam for hours. And I'd record it, and then I would pull chunks of it out. I didn't even care if it was in key or in time, and I would stick them like Easter eggs, like in a video game, like in in different songs parts of songs and I'd drench them with giant cathedral reverbs and you'd never know they were there but it was like a passing ghost you know when you're looking somewhere like me and you were talking right now and out of the corner of your eye you think you see something walk by but it's not really there I would stick ghosts in the dialect records but when I went to Germany it was like they're only listening to the ghosts there's no other information it's only the ghosts and I said you know what I'm from India my family's from India you know and I've always had this ancestral drone and and sympathetics in my sound and I said this is what I'm ultimately was born to do I'm trying to connect with my ancestors Indian music has been around for like seven eight thousand years you know it's one of the earliest forms of still existing music yeah. like music that's still being played from ancient times is India it's seven thousand years old so it's in my DNA it's in my whole how I hear music, you know? So when I got to Germany, I'm sorry it's taking so long time. Um, I just, that was great. (laughs) Just realized like, like these Germans are only listening to the ghost. They don't need all that other bullshit. They don't need the front of the sound. They're listening to the back of the amp, you know? And I'm like, I want to make records where all you're doing is listening to the back of the amp. And then between that, kind of sensation and feelings I was getting and then going to raves every night man I just went to raves like I'd go to like it was like going to CB's and Wetlands and fucking uh, Crazy Country Club and Lemoore's and all these places back in the day you didn't just go to CB's you went to like eight places on the way to CB's and after CB's and Germany Berlin was like that with the techno thing with the dance culture you'd, you'd go to like Bergheim but on the way there you'd hear bass coming out of this place and you'd stop in there and then on the way you'd stop again in another place and you'd go to like six clubs in one night 
great. And I always noticed, I'm like, man, it's like mosh parts for chicks. It's all girls, gay people, black people, and they're going off like it's fucking Slayer in here. And I, that was one thing that sort of bothered me with dialect was like, we don't have just like straight white guys with like chain wallets and upside down crosses and beards. And I'm like, where's the girls? You know, when we first started, we had this a little more diverse crowd. And I think by the end, we were just doing so much metal touring. Like it wasn't as like, we didn't do as much hip hop as at the end because we were just on Ipecac and we were getting offered a lot of great tours. We couldn't turn them down. Sure. But, but that I kind of swallowed up our audience into this kind of one-dimensional crowd. And a lot of that crowd was very much like, uh, we don't even like hip-hop, but you guys are great. And That's I just, the worst, fucking, man. It's like, I, I don't hate niggers, but a lap's cool. You know, like, I got a lot of that growing up. You know, I grew up with Italians, and you know, in a, a Sopranos town. So in the 80s, when I told them I was Indian, they would say, what tribe are you, Cherokee, <laughs> Navajo? You know, now everyone's on the cha and yoga tip, you know? So I'm like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here, you know? So when I, when I would hear those things like, oh, I don't even like hip-hop, but a lap's okay, it would kind of bring me back to my childhood. Like, oh, I, I don't hate niggers a lot's cool you know a lot of the times you say stuff like that and i'm like all right well you know how about i make hip-hop for people who actually like hip-hop you know like that's how about trying that and at the same time i, I i'm sorry i'm taking this a long about roundabout way but at the same time like 2009 i started hearing a lot of these younger producers a lot of younger rappers and rap was going mainstream r&b uh hip-hop reggaeton Club culture around 2005, you had Outkast and J Lo and and uh, Ludacris and Destiny's Child and uh, Jay Z with the Black Album, and it was like all of a sudden 2005 to like 2009, I was like back into the radio again, the way I was when I was into Duran Duran and Mexican Radio and Flock of Seagulls. It was like, oh shit, I kind of love pop music again, you know. And so by 2009-10, I started realizing, especially in Germany, these clubs I'm going to. Like, there's not a straight guy in the room. Like, this is, it's all, it isn't like barely any white guys here except for some Germans. And most of those guys are gay, you know? And I started seeing it. I'm like, oh, it's just as heavy as Agnostic Front. It's just, it's heavy for girls. And I also worked with a lot of girls in 2005 in the studio that year for whatever reason. I worked with about a dozen different females and they were in different roles. Like, one girl was a pianist, one girl was a drummer in a punk band, one girl was a guitarist, one girl was a singer. So it wasn't like it was just only singer-songwriter or only piano. I worked with like 12 different, and every one of those girls made me push my mixes further, harder, and it was the beginning of me realizing, I'm like, yo, I'm a really aggressive dude. I'm a dude I came up with crews. I've always had wolf packs. I'm like, I can't just be around five guys that are like me, a bunch of yes men. It's easy to impress straight guys. You know, just make it loud and distorted and turn it up, you know? And every straight guy responds, yeah, you know? But the girls, it was like, can we turn off like half this shit? Like girls would literally like how your wife talks to you, you know? Like like girls would just be like, yo, why is there so much shit? Like can you just turn off half the stuff? Like we don't even need half this. And it was the beginning of me getting into minimalism, you know? And then being in Germany, it's like, oh, women respond when you have below the Ds sub bass not bass guitar where it's in your yeah. fucking waist they want to ship down by their ankles they want their entire bodies to be vibrating like butter you know and that's what an 808 will give you and once you put an 808 into a mix you can turn off 25 other tracks yeah. because the 808 carries all that weight you don't need Absolutely. everything else so a lot of these girls between 2005 and 9 a lot of the pop music a lot of the R&B and hip hop and club stuff and then being in Germany it was just like oh this is where the ghosts live this is where the ancestors are this is where the girls hang out you know like this is what makes fucking black people crazy this is what makes gay people go ham I'm not black I'm not a 
girl and I'm not I'm, I'm not gay. Uh, you know, I'm not trans. I got really into the Vogue thing when I came back to New York. I came back to New York in 2011. I started going to all these gay Vogue parties and I'm like the only straight, not black guy in the room. <laughs> I'm the only not trans person in the room and I'm watching people like Mike Q and Byrell the Great and, and Devoli Sevier and there was a party called Vogue Nights on Monday nights and they'd go from one till six in the morning and it was like that Paris is Burning thing. The Harlem ballroom scene had progressed into this really heavy, brutal, amazing, it was, I called it the new New York hardcore. I'm like, this reminds me of what CBs was like in 87. It's underground, there's no interviews, there's no merch, there's no, you don't know what your favorite DJ even looks like, there's no press photos. I'm like, punk was supposed to be all this shit, but Henry Rollins and Ian McKay are just like Jagger and Richards. They're still fucking idols to somebody, you know? I'm like, your favorite DJ, your favorite producer, you don't even know what they look like. (laughs) You know? Like, you're here for the dancing. And again, that brought me back to New York hardcore. You went to go to see hardcore shows to dance. You didn't really go there to watch a band and clap politely between songs. You didn't even care if they sounded good, as long as it can make you go off. As long as you can hear the drums, you know? Like, as long as that's the main thing. That's the main thing, you know? Communicate that rhythm, you know? The rhythm going. And that, so I, you know, I kind of came back from Berlin a very changed man and then this New York Vogue thing hit me at the perfect moment like 2011 to like 2014 15 I was really immersed in that and then I started working in 2013 14 with all these hood rappers I got Flatbush Blood Gang members I got Crown Heights up in here I got the Bronx up in here I got Harlem in Harlem so I got half of Harlem up in here I got cats from Staten Island I got Queensbridge up in here I got everybody coming through Southside Jamaica Queens and I'm like they're all 14 to 17 years old and they're 14 I think I was like 37 and fucking 2014 Jesus drops bro and it was amazing I was like this is what I fought for I wasn't trying to make hip hop for a bunch of white boy wire magazine readers I wanted 14 year old blood gang members to be listening to this shit and Kanye came out with Jesus, and that was their public enemy takes a nation of millions and you know what that did to me bro I'm gonna get watery eyed right now like I was 14 when takes a nation came out I was 13 when it came out it hit me at the perfect time riding around in a fucking car bumping that shit fighting Italians you know it was like perfect right now I'm hanging out with these young homies they're 14 I'm like 37 or 38, but I feel like I'm 14 again. And we're just all up in here. They got their girls blowing out their hair. There's nine motherfuckers in here. We're just blasting Jesus. Everybody's just Jesus. You know, like everybody's just going ham. And I kind of regrew up. I had another childhood with these kids. And I've been working. Now they're all 22. I've been working with them for eight years. A couple of them, one of them signed a Joey Badass's label. A couple of them are blowing up. They're starting to tour. Starting to get a million streams and all this stuff. Um, So basically... I kind of was able to find a whole new way to be heavy, and that's what I was trying to do when I did Dialect. That's what Black Flag was trying to do when they did Black Flag. That's what the Velvet Underground was trying to do when they did Velvet Underground. They were trying to find a new way to be heavy. And for me, the club thing, the Vogue thing, the trap thing, the R&B thing, the pop thing even, Beyonce came out with the B record the same year as the Yeezus came out. Rihanna came out with Anti the same year that came out. 2014 for me was the year of pop the way 86 was the year of metal, you know? The way 87 was the year of hardcore, you know? The way way 80 was the 
year of Michael Jackson, you know, whatever it was. So I remember Rihanna, Beyonce, um, Kanye, Drake, these records sounded fucking mind-blowing, and they were where I was going with that ghost sound, connecting with your ancestors. Put on a fucking Drake record, bro, and you can hear ghosts in that sound, man. It's mind-blowing. Noah Forty is one of the greatest engineer-producers of all time. That's that's Drake's main guy. And, and Kanye's got Mike Dean. If you don't know about Mike Dean, look him up. He is hands down one of the most important producer engineers of the last 25, maybe 30 years. He's from Texas. He started as a classical oboe guy. He's a white guy. He's like 50-something years old. Kind of looks like you. <laughs> and, uh, and he's amazing. And, uh, and, he's, and he became Selena's bass player. Remember the Mexican... Uh, Pop star Selena, yeah, Selena, they made a movie yeah. about her, J-Lo. Mm-hmm. He was their bass player, and then he graduated to be her band director. Then he started doing Scarface and all the fucking uh, Houston stuff. He's from Houston. And then he went out to L.A. and started working with Dre and Dog Pound and Snoop. And then Kanye found him, and he since that moment, he's been Kanye's guy. He's Travis Scott's guy. And if you listen and watch Kanye on Saturday Night Live, if you watch Travis Scott, there's a white guy playing guitar, and he's got a bunch of keyboards, moogs and stuff around him. Yeah. That's my Mike Dean, oh, no and he's a big prog guy, he's a classical guy, he's the guy that's putting a lot of those musicalities into modern hip-hop, and that's what me and Will were doing with Josh from All Natural Lemon Flavors, we had our own white guy that would do all the chord progressions on yeah. the keys and the guitar, and when we were doing it, people used to knock us and say, oh, it's too musical, it's too rock, and now that's what hip-hop is, to me, hip-hop is more musical than band music, because it's actual composition now, there's amazing chord progressions happening there's amazing harmonies happening amazing melodies happening and it's because the young homies are really open-minded they're on white boy drugs and they're working with some old white guys and some indie white guys asap mob works with like an indie rock guitar player kid from london you know so these guys are bringing in what we used to have with dialect we had tons of white guys that would that would bring in stuff on our records you know so that's a great thing to see today so it just made me feel like why would i keep doing dialect like we already conquered that there's a whole new thing happening here you know and it's a new and it's a new crowd like now girls in harlem that are nine years old with the cornrows doing jump rope routines are fucking going ham to like jay-z kanye watch the throne you know like there's distorted beats on that record and yeezus that are heavier than dialect and you see nine-year-old girls on the basketball courts doing jump rope routines to it bro that to me is that's the power of music. That's everything. It's not just to stay in some underground forum for a bunch of fucking nerdy white <laughs> wire magazine guys. I, it should be community music, you know? It's for the community. It's for the people. You know, Public Enemy wasn't just us in the suburbs. No, no Everybody was into Public yep, Enemy. That's right. And that's what Kanye's been doing. That's what Drake's been doing. That's what Beyonce and Rihanna have been doing. They're bringing what we were doing in the underground 20 years ago to Super Bowl halftime to the Budweiser crowd to the Pepsi crowd to me that's Brian Wilson that's Lou Reed that's John Lennon that's fucking Velvet Underground I mean that is what they did it wasn't like they were trying to not spread art to the masses you know the Beatles figured out how to sell to Christians and Bible Belt and you know Super Bowl crowds or whatever they art you know so it's we're in an amazing time it felt like dialect for me the mission was done you know, I feel like after the '90s, you know, that's when music really fractured into these little subgenres. Sure, and I think the internet also helped. That. Yeah, like, and, and people, it's it's almost like the 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 human ego is like what 
keeps people so limited yeah, about dude. what makes them feel special because they have this certain little gem that they found well, it's, somewhere. It's also a generational thing to an extent. I, I could be wrong with this as far as like band music. I haven't followed a band or band music in like 10, 15 years, so I don't know what the younger generation of live musicians mentality is, but I want to say that I feel like they're a lot more open than the guys that we grew up with because you see a lot of guys playing guitar with like chaos pads built into the guitar now and <laughs> yeah, yeah. they're doing crazy. Yeah. Like what Radiohead would have done, now everybody's kind of on yeah. that, you know? Like, so... But one thing I've noticed, at least with my young rappers, and I, I work with a lot of R&B and gospel girls, too, and, and um, club singers, and, and they're all under 22, 25, you know, and, and um, it's insane how open they are to everything. And it made me realize when we were growing up, right, it was like Warrant, Whitesnake, Winger was monopolizing the airwaves, right. you know, Richard Marks and all Richard these ballad music and stuff. And so you'd have to wait until like 2.45 in the morning to catch Stigmata in a Bad Brains video or a Sick of It All, an agnostic front at the end of Headbangers Ball. And you'd be infuriated because Headbangers Ball would be playing the same glam that they were playing all day on primetime. So you felt a little bit like cheated, like why at midnight am I still seeing a, a Whitesnake video? And right, I, yeah. I love Whitesnake now, but at the time I was upset about it. And I think when our generation was coming up, right i always say this our generation is very i'm 45 i'm not sure how old you are but 51 okay so you're even older than me yeah even older than you man. right way older <laughs> no, so uh, so you know you so you you'll really get this is that it was very much us against them you wore your your passion of music on your fucking sleeve like a flag like i'm into hardcore now i'm not just into any hardcore i'm into straight edge hardcore yeah. i'm into new york hardcore i'm into crusty punk i'm into death metal i'm into you had to break all that shit down and then wear it like a flag and defend it because you would never there was no outlets to experience this music and you were we were all fighting each other you were fighting the guido that was listening to underground club music you were fighting the jamaicans that were listening to underground reggae and dance hall you were fighting the metal guys you were fighting the punk guys you were to get a limited two-hour window on mtv <laughs> at midnight so yeah. of course you started getting like oh i hate that shit it's i hate that shit i hate that shit fuck that shit but today's kids i call them cafeteria style it's buffet they just pick and choose because the internet everything's, everything's available there's no yeah. longer a, a need to be upset at any style of music because every style is equally able to be heard and experienced now if you like something type it in on youtube bro <laughs> i don't know what else to tell you you know yeah. but when we were little it wasn't like that if you know the guidos got like 10 minutes on mtv the metal guys got like 10 minutes on mtv the brothers got like 10 minutes so everybody was at war to get airtime you know so you just started hating the other guy because you, they're monopolizing on your airtime but now what's the sense of hating so it seems to me like the younger generation is very open and they don't really have hate like you know what i noticed my young rappers always say like i'll ask them like yo what do you, like when they come in like what are you listening to now what are you listen to now put me on some shit put me on some shit and then I'll tell them what I'm into, like oh, I'm really into extentation, or I'm really into, you know, smoke purple, whatever it is. And they'll, if they don't like something, they don't do what our generation. Oh fuck, smoke purple, fuck that guy. Like, you know how many people get so upset when yeah, we were, you yeah, know, our exactly. generation. Oh, why do you like the bad range? Or why do you like, you know? But these guys, they just go, oh yeah, smoke purple's cool. I don't really fuck with it like that, but it's cool. Like they don't, they have no hatred for anything. They're, it's not us against them. Our generation, it's all us against them. You know? Yeah, very true. And that only gets worse when you get older. Yeah. It doesn't get better. No, you know? that's true. <laughs> and it's a shame because with the internet, you would think that everyone would be just be into everything now because you can watch whatever you want. If you don't like something, you can literally just put in what Turn you like. Turn you it off. Turn it off. Do something else. Yeah. 
In the old days, you'd turn it off, but now you just put on what you want. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, all, it's all on demand, basically. Now, That's true. You know? Yeah. So. so before we started talking, you were mentioning something about a label and Christian from oh, okay, right, and all that stuff. Sure. So, um... Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm taking I'm taking no, a lot of your time here. Uh, <laughs> well, what else am I going to do? All right, right cool, cool. Uh, so you know, like um, I, I told you the whole thing about going to Berlin, getting into the techno and dance scene, coming back here, getting into the Vogue and the R&B and the pop and the and the hip hop. So by like 2014, I started doing my own solo shit. It's called Background Audio, like BKGD is the initials audio, background audio, right? And it's kind of like 8080, really minimal stoner, kind of ghosted out booty music booty music is like like miami bass chicago you know booty house and and juke and detroit ghetto tech it's got a long history it's like really hood you twerk to it you know strip clubs it's all that it's like it's like mosh parts for really tough hood chicks you know (laughs) it's like really tough black chicks listen to booty music you know i love it it reminds me of like you know when you go to see sheer terror there would only be 50 people dancing to them but those 50 were the craziest motherfuckers in new york then sick of it all would come on like a thousand people would dance to them but they were all from the suburbs you know but sheer terror had that like this is the crazy the hood is crowd you know so it was it's a booty music's a little bit like sheer terror like it's like really hooded and now it's become Disney like you see twerking everywhere and stuff but the roots of booty music was like what happened was the Europeans like the Germans and stuff the Belgians and the Dutch they took Chicago House they took Detroit Techno in the 90s you know the Happy Mondays and all that British Manchester and all that they took the factory you know the Hacienda and all that they took um, all this hood stuff that was house and techno and they made it into this kind of euro thing the euro trash thing and so i think what the next wave of of chicago and detroit natives and and other cities too philly and and down south and everywhere memphis and all that stuff they started feeling like not represented by techno anymore not represented by house like to them it was like some euro thing and they started putting the 808s and sampling like like how hip-hop would sample or sampling like a hip-hop vocal over like a booty house track and you started getting this hybrid thing of booty music so to me it's like tough guy bitch music you know like instead of tough guy hardcore it's like tough girl you know so i got really obsessed Background audio, I did an album, and I, it was like the beginning of today where nobody, there's no labels anymore, and nobody really gives a shit about what you're doing, and you know, I, it wasn't like any I could use any of my dialect connections, because I was very actively just trying to get away from that. I'm still so so cool with Will, I'm super yeah. cool with, with Pat, and I still text those guys, I still talk to those guys, but I just, it wasn't my world anymore, and I and I just didn't really have any ins, because I'm fucking 45, to, uh, to this youth you know, there's a whole new scene. It's all being yeah, run by like 20 year olds. Yeah, they turn old. Amazing labels they happening old. right now. There's amazing clubs happening right now in New York, but I just didn't have a lot of ins. So um, I decided, like, all right, well, you, it's easy enough to like get on DistroKid and fucking put out your own records and get them on Spotify and Apple and all that. So I started this label with my partner, me and him, uh, this guy, Merck Anthony. He's in. Um, He's in a group called MRC Rhythms with me, and we started right after I quit Dialect, me and him. He was in the, also in All Natural Lemon Lime Flavors from okay. back in the day, and he had done a band called If When that was kind of like a Bowie, shoegaze, prog thing and electronic, and then by 2009-10, he was also really into Beyonce and, and a lot of R&B and pop and, and club music, so to get to, me and him realized we could make something together, so we started this MRC Rhythms project, then I started doing background audio, which is like a solo thing, so it just was suddenly like, we have all this music, and it's just sitting on hard drives so why don't we start a label so we had done a song together called internet and weed so we ended up calling the label internet and weed and then for the last four years we've just kind of been putting out a lot of our own 
projects and collaborations with other artists and stuff. And Christian is somebody, he has the label called Translation Loss. Yeah. And he was in a band called Empty Flowers, and I believe he sang on a cable record. Oh, I yeah, the la- I sang on that too. Actually. You sang on that too, right? Yeah. See, I don't know, that th- I was out of it by that, that era, yeah. but I know the name Cable for sure. I yeah. know the ISIS guys really forever, well, yeah. So, and I know Randy. I, yeah, I Randy. stayed at his house when I was in dialect, so yeah. I, I knew of Cable, but it was a little bit after my, my sure. time, so I kind of missed some of that. But Christian... I met him in 2016. He came to record uh, an album with me, and, and he asked me you know, to produce and engineer. And I just said at that point, I'm like, I'm not really working with bands anymore. I did 25 years of bands. I mean, four of those years was every day, <laughs> 20 yeah. hours a day. I know how to fucking mic a Marshall. I know how to make a fucking snare drum sound good. You know, I know how to make sure. a sky screaming on a mic awesome. I'm over it, man. You know, I'm like, if you're, if you're willing to let me fucking manhandle your record... And and I'm into all this new shit and bring some of these elements into your sound. I'm down to do it. And Christian was really awesome. He was really open. And it was funny when he pulled up to the studio the first day. He pulled up blasting the Bieber record. And that Justin Bieber record is one of my fucking favorite records of the last ten years. It's another one. You listen to the production. Listen to the musicalities. You hear dialectisms all over that shit, man. It's fucking mind blowing. It's it's as psychedelic as a Pink Floyd record. And he's selling it to thirteen year old Nickelodeon fans. Like that is the Beach Boy to me i always said good vibrations if you mute the vocals on good vibrations it's the most avant-garde song you've ever heard in your life there's a key change there's that moogie theremin thing happening there's fucking a tempo change and then you put the vocals in the christians like it the grandmothers like it the bible belt loves it the nickelodeon disney crowd likes it the pepsi crowd likes it the vocals falsely give you this sense of pop but what's happening underneath is really avant-garde and i remember during dialect that was my line of thinking i'm like i already did the melvins i did slayer how do i do brian wilson now how do i trick a bunch of people into not realizing how arty this is and that's where we are today that bieber record was like that you would think it was nickelodeon you listen to it you're like this is my bloody valentine man the song that diplo did with skrillex the it's like that that was his it single. Like that, um, it's got that total bump, 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 and with a weird timing, like they're doing a yeah, three it's got against the Kevin Shields. Kind of Kevin like Shields vibe, bends vibe with a Mashuga three against four rhythm. Yeah, yeah. it's I, going I, bump, 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 yep. bump, 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 yeah, bump. I, mean, I, I catch that too. Incredible, yeah. And that was a number one hit, and it was everywhere. And I remember he pulled up listening to that, and I go, "Okay, this record's gonna rule." You know, I'm like, if he's coming in listening to Bieber, we're on the same page. You know. So then from that moment on, me and Christian got really close. We've done in the past three years like a few projects together and probably like seven or eight records so about six three six three three four months ago he hit me in Merck up and was just kind of like yeah so you know like I got translation loss I've been doing the label for 17 years I'm doing pretty well um I could help you guys with internet and weed. He's like, I really fuck with, with what you guys are doing, and I love the whole vibe and sound and all the artists you got. He's like, because we didn't know. We're not business guys. We don't know how to run a label. We just have it because we need to put our music out. So he was kind of like, if you let me on board, I would. I could totally help you like with distribution and like the mail order and all this kind of business managerial stuff, and we were like, fuck yeah. So, um, so yeah, February 28th is going to be 
our uh, kind of launch, official like launch oh, nice. of That's 2020 coming, right up, coming up. We're working with an artist named Toby. She's kind of got like a Janet, Whitney, Beyonce thing going. And uh, me and Merck do all the music with her mm -hmm. uh, from MRC Rhythms. And uh, the single's got a little Robin S. Show Me Love kind of vibes to it, like real classic New York, but like updated today. And uh, so we're dropping that single on February 28th. And Christian's like helping us with like, he got us like all this amazing distro and all this kind of cool stuff. So, and then after that, we got um, an R&B record I produced with this girl from Harlem. She, her name's Onda. And it's real codeined out like Janet Prince kind of vibes, but like on fucking morphine. It's so good, man. I can't wait for you to hear it. Then Christian's got a record he's doing. It's called The Brazilian Gentleman. Um, it's similar to what you had done with him with N. Christian. Yeah. And um, kind of the evolution of that. And then I have a project with a friend of mine from Copenhagen. It's called Third Culture Kings. And, um, and it's a bit like Leonard Cohen, Dylan, Velvet Underground. But if it was produced like Drake, Kanye, Rihanna, you know, it's really songwritery, blissed out kind of stoner. But the fucking mixes, man, you put it in a car and it's just like every girl is going to go fucking ham on nice. the block. You know, it's got that trunk shaker thing. So we got four releases coming up between February and May already ready to to go and that's an awesome. exciting year man that's why i'm excited that you asked me to do this out of the blue i'm like oh my god it's perfect no, man it's the yeah. universe it is the universe it really is working in unison yeah man. it's definitely. awesome yeah but dude thanks a lot yeah man, i hope i said all the right things oh, no, I, no. I i talked a lot so oh, dude you said all the right things it's <laughs> awesome. great man awesome thanks mike it's great to talk to you man hell yeah man it for this week's episode of metal matters a gimme radio weekly podcast tune in next week and see what we have in store for you the show is available on all streaming platforms apple Podcasts, itunes spotify etc also be sure to check out gimme radio streaming on the web ios or android for one of the best metal communities exclusive merch interviews with artists and so much more i'll catch you guys next week take care